Good morning. It's good to be here. I was just telling Mark it's, it's good to come. I've been here before and good to see some familiar faces. So thanks for having me and it's good to worship with you and to process our lives before God together. So let me read from 1 Corinthians 13. Join me, would you? Paul says this. God says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does, dis- it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That is God's word. So today... We're going to be looking at a category, you might say, uh, from the Bible, which talks about uh, transformation of the heart. The Christian, one of the astounding things that the Christian faith says is that people can change. Uh, And because the transformation of the heart is not primarily a work of of yours and mine, but it's primarily a, a work of God's, then you can trust that that change is going to be real. It's going to be permanent, and though gradual, it will stick. And so the New Testament talks about that in a lot of different ways. In Ephesians 4, uh, it talks about a gospel-transformed heart uh, in a way that it says, uh, it describes it as the restoration of God's image in us. Another way that it talks about it is as in the fruit of the Spirit. It says that the work of God uh, is such in your life that it's seasonal and organic, but you can be sure that that work will bring a harvest. But it's not a harvest of edible food. It, rather, it is a, a, a harvest of character, of gospel-transformed character. Character that looks like uh, the character of God. And so th- that harvest, looks the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-discipline and goodness, faithfulness. And so today I want to talk about all of those fruits but I want to talk about them uh, through the lens of love because love is the essential fruit in which all the different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit come. 
So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, which is called the love chapter. Uh, and perhaps this is the first time you've heard this chapter talked about outside of a wedding. Um, this is a, a staple in weddings. I would say probably every other wedding I do, this passage is read. And just to let you know, this passage has absolutely nothing to do with romance. It has absolutely nothing to do with marriage. But I will say this. If you pull it out of context and you use it in a wedding, it is, it's perfectly good and right. Why? Because marriage is a microcosm of community. It's the most intense form of community. And therefore, although, because this passage is about community, it's good, it's a blessing for couples to be able to, to hear this, to be able to talk about the promises that God has for you within this very intense form of community. But... If you talk about it in its original context, which we're going to do today, I think it's like a key, a lost key, that has finally found its home and it unlocks a door, if you will, for not just couples, but entire communities of people who are committed to living their lives together. And it teaches us to live and to love in radically new ways. So let's think about three things as we go through this, let's th three categories to consider that Paul wants us to consider, and that is that love is essential, that love is transformational, and that love is dependable. Love is essential for Christian community. Love is transformational, and therefore it, it forms you and I, it forms our character. And then love is dependable. You can always count on it. Okay. So first, love is essential. Love is essential for the church, according to Paul, and without it, we, we are nothing distinct. We are nothing, he says. So if you know anything about the church of Corinth, or if you know anything about the city of Corinth, I don't suppose that you would, um, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to you that the city is far, for, far more familiar to us than not. Uh, the city of Corinth is a lot like New York City. city uh, Corinth was a port city. So it attracted gifted and talented people. It attracted entrepreneurial types. It, it attracted creative types. Uh, people went there to make it. People went there to uh, have their identities formed, to be a part of the cultural conversation that was going on. So the, the city of Corinth, like New York, was full of really uh, type A go-getters, movers, and shakers. And because of that, the church of Corinth was filled with people like that too. And though they were very accomplished people, though they, though they were lettered people, they were gifted and talented people, they couldn't get along. They were a church full of division and strife because, Paul is saying, they didn't understand love. And it's not just any kind of generic love that he's talking about. He's talking about a very specific kind of love. And in that time, they referred to love in, very, in multiple different ways. One of the ways was eros, which is a, a romantic, desirous kind of love. The second was phila, which we get to uh, where the city Philadelphia comes from. The city of what? brotherly love. So phila means more of a compassionate kind of love, a loving their neighbor kind of love. But the, the kind of love that Paul's talking about is very specific, and it's agape kind of love. It describes God's love. And the kind of love that Paul's talking about is not God's love in general in a warm and cozy kind of way, but he's talking about the kind of love that, uh, that he himself has experienced in Jesus Christ. And therefore... Agape love always means sacrificial love. 
It's the kind of love that makes you think ahead for somebody else and put their needs above your own. It's the kind of love that makes you carry burdens for other people to value their life over and above yours to make them more important than you, to honor them more than you would honor yourself. So it's a sacrificial kind of love. Uh, and so Paul's talking to this community that is full of division, full of strife, and he's saying, I don't see any of this. They ran into problems that were absolutely unnecessary. And then when these problems arose, they didn't have the skills, as talented as they were, they didn't have the skills to resolve them. Um, You could say, and he says, that you guys are gifted and talented, you're even moral, but your your church is known more for being impatient and unkind and quick-tempered and harsh and petty and full and... Uh, a community of people that holds grudges, a community uh, that people look at and say, this is a self-righteous group of people, not a self-sacrificing group of people. And so he looks at them and he says, he reminds them that the church of Jesus Christ, the purpose for them is to be a unified group of diverse people, a counterculture of sacrificial love, not just for themselves, but for the, for the common good, for everybody. Now, why, how did that happen? Why did their gifts and their talents overtake them? And why did their gifts and their talents become a source of division instead of a source of unity? It's the same reason that, this, that we struggle with. That our gifts and talents can become vehicles, not for love, but for our, our own identity. That our gifts become, uh, how do I say it? Uh, I say it this way. Though they knew the gospel in their head, the good news of what God had done for us in Jesus Christ hadn't transferred into their heart. It hadn't transformed their heart. And so they saw their gifts as defining themselves, as justifying their very existence. But according to the Bible, gifts or our achievements are never meant to define us as human beings. We're defined by the Christians are defined by the love of God. And therefore, our gifts are actually vehicles to help other people, not to to determine who we are, not to bring about self-actualization, because we have self-actualization because of who we are in, in, in Christ. And therefore, we're free now, not to go out and slay dragons so that people say, I'm a dragon slayer, but to go out and help others because... I have all the assurance I need in God because of what Christ has done for me. And therefore, I'm free. I'm liberated to help others. I'm free to be a uniter and not a divider. And so Paul looks at their gifts and talents, and he, and he compares them, or he, he, he looks at them. Uh, he wants us to see our gifts and talents in light of agape love, sacrificial love. How should we think about our gifts? He says, we're not to pit one against the other, but to show how our abilities are dependent upon and informed by love. Because ultimately, what defines the church, what uh, the church's identity, is the love that we've experienced and the love love that others experience through us. When all is said and done, the church is not about how smart we are. It's not about how talented we are. It's not about great teaching or beautiful music. Ultimately, what defines the church is the love that we experience and the love that others experience through us. So let's look at the gifts that he talks about, because the gifts that he talks about, they're astounding. They're incredible. 
He says, uh, if you have, the, uh, you, have, you have the gift to speak in the tongues of men or of angels. Now what he's talking about is not just mere eloquence. He's not talking about people who are super articulate. He's saying that this community has the gift of divine revelation and they have the ability to take what God has communicated to them and teach it to other people. Um, and yet, though this is a, re- a revered form of communication, notice how jarring this speech is without love as its motivation. He says it sounds like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, what does a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal sound like to the ear? It's so annoying, right? Sorry, drummers. It's brash. It hurts the ear. It's jarring, right? It's hollow. There's no substance to it, you might say. And so here's, here's what we need to hear. Without love, you may have the word of God. You may know your Bible inside and out. And yet, if you are not communicating, if you're not, if you're not uh, taking that knowledge and allowing the, the sacrificial love of God to infuse your motive, to give you motivation to communicate that, nobody will hear you and nobody will want to hear you. So if you, if you are not thinking about the person you're communicating to and, and putting yourself in their shoes and, and empathizing with them and working very hard to communicate in such a way that they hear you and they feel you, or better, yet, better said, that they hear and feel God communicating to you, then you'll come across as selfish. Uh, you'll come across as a, a clanging gong. Uh, they should... When, when you communicate the truths of God, it, sh- it should be like a tuning fork in their soul that something begins to resonate with them. And so out of sacrificial love, we need to work hard as Christians. We need to work hard to be able to communicate that to them. He says, uh, you have the ability to prophesy and you can fathom all mysteries and knowledge. That's kind of an academic gift. That's kind of a scholarly gift. You might think of some of the Old Testament prophets of Moses and Elijah, Daniel, uh, they had this, this ability, they had the inform, inside track, they had the information on, on the plans of God. The, uh, next he says, you have faith to move mountains. What is it, the faith to move mountains? It's not a Jedi mind trick where you could just take a mountain and push it over to the side. Actually, this is a leadership gift. This is a gift to be able to take a bunch of different people, all with varying opinions, bring them all together to overcome some insurmountable obstacle. So you have a faith to be able to move that huge problem right there and to get a lot of people together to be able to do that. And you can lead them. So it's a leadership gift. Uh, he says, give all that you have to the poor and give up my body. So here he goes from gifts to actual morality. So here he's talking about a group of people who are strategic and creative, who understand their own uh, ability to generate money and that they take all of their skills and their talents to generate money so that they can help other people. So they look at their income and they think, wow, how much can I make so that I can serve? Pretty, pretty incredible. Some of the people he's talking about do that to such a degree that they actually are willing to lay down their life. And one commentator says, what, who's he talking to? He's talking to the conservatives and the liberals at the exact same time. All the conservatives say, hey, I've got the truth. I, 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 I'm an imparter of the truth. I'm going I'm to talk about the law. We're going to build uh, bridges to... to, to uh, protect the truth. And then he says, you have the liberals. They're the types that, that uh, they, they march for the cause. They know the truth and they lay down their life for other people. They're not fence builders, but they're bridge builders. And he's saying, all of you, 
though you're gifted and talented, though you're even moral, if you are not doing this, if you're doing all of this work in, a, in an effort to justify your life, then you are not the distinct community that, that God's called you to be. Rest in the, in the assurance of God and love people out of the love that he's given you. So incredible gifts, divine gifts. Proverbs 16 says this, he says, it says, all the ways of men are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord knows the motives. Now, this is not just a church problem. This is a cultural problem. This is a human condition problem. Every now and again, it happens all the time, we read in the paper, in some area of industry, whether finance or the arts, uh, fashion, sports, you hear of somebody who has just revolutionized their industry, and they're incredible, and they're, they're, uh, they're lauded for, the, for what some product that they've brought to the, to the market, or for some championship that they've brought to their city, and everybody just, just uh, they're showered with accolades. But then stories come out about uh, how they used people on the road to success, how they weren't good collaborators, how everybody was just uh, used as a means to an end to make sure that this goal is achieved. That the stories come out that they were just monsters to work with. They treated people as uh, inhumanly, right? So it's not just a church problem. It's a cultural problem. There was an interview with Charlie Rose that was, he was talking with, um, he was talking with maybe the most famous photographer of the 20th century. And they were having this great conversation. They were talking about the body of work that he, he had amassed, uh, how he had created, he was so innovative in his field. Um, and he said, but I recognize, I've known you for a long time. And he says, I know that this has come at great personal cost, uh, that marriages have, you've had, you know, relationships that have been, uh, broken relationships with children that are strained. And the artist said, you know, that's absolutely true, but I can't help but think it was worth it because I did something great. I'm paraphrasing him, but that's what he said. And Charlie Rose backed out of that conversation so fast to protect his friend. He did not want to go down, down that path because everybody knows that our gifts and our talents are not meant to bring about suffering and pain for other people so that we can feel more creative, so that we can make a name for ourselves. Our gifts and talents are to serve and to contribute to this world. Uh, Rick, uh, David Brooks, if you've been reading anything about David Brooks of late, the last couple of years he's been doing, writing a lot uh, about virtues and character. And he says the world is, in our culture, we essentially have these two sets of virtues. Uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He says resume virtues are the virtues that you put on your resume, your skills, what you're good at. How can you accrue more money? How can you advance your career? Eulogy virtues are the kinds of things that uh, people are going to be talking about at your funeral. They're the mo more profound qualities. Are you, are you there for other people? Have you been a good friend? Uh, do you love sacrificially? So on and so forth. And he says, everybody knows that eulogy virtues are far more important than resume virtues. But as a culture, we spend an inordinate amount of time focusing on our resume virtues. And David Brooks, he's at the pinnacle of his profession, right? Op-ed writer for the Times, teaches at Yale. He's got it all. And he says, I've spent an inordinate amount of time on my resume virtues to the extent that my world is crumbling. 
that my inner life is crumbling, that I don't even know who I am anymore. And so he stopped everything in order to write a book and, and think about it and discover who he is as a person. What are they going to say about him at his, at his funeral? Uh, Eugene Peterson actually gives us some hope. Well, I shouldn't say Eugene Peterson gives us hope. The Bible gives us some hope. And Eugene Peterson has a translation of the Bible called The Message that I, I appreciate. And in Psalm, 50, Psalm 78, we see in shadow form uh, some hope for us. <clears throat> Psalm 78 says this. It says, His good heart made him a good shepherd. His good heart made him a good shepherd. He guided the people wisely and well. The shepherd's beautiful heart made his skills beautiful and attractive. And sometimes they were actually very perplexing. Anybody know the relationship that David, he's talking about David, King David, that King David had with his boss, Saul? Very interesting relationship, kind of confusing. David was the king in waiting. He had all the gifts, he had all the skills, he had the love of the people, he, was, uh, he had an incredible reputation. They sang songs about David. But he was not the anointed king early on. But Saul was. And Saul was this fading king. And Saul was probably the world's worst boss. And David was probably the best employee. Saul said, there's a giant that needs to be slayed. David said, I'll do it. There's an army that needs to be removed. David said, I'll overcome them. And he did. Saul said, I'm not feeling well today. I'm depressed and I can't get out of bed. David said, I'm going to play a harp. And I'm going to bring peace to you. Incredible employee. Saul, in his times of depression and in his times of tremendous envy of this up-and-coming person within his court, sometimes would pick up a, 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 a spear, excuse me, He'd pick up a spear and he'd throw it at David. He never hit David, but it always penetrated. He never physically hit David, but David felt it. But because of the integrity of his heart, he never learned to throw spears. He never learned to retaliate the way that you and I might. <laughs> he always recognized, because he knew who he was in God, he worked to protect to honor Saul, even when Saul was not protecting and honoring him. He protected Saul from Saul. He was thinking ahead. Why? Because he was so confident in who he was in God. He was not thinking about career advancement. And the irony, of course, is that we're still talking about David today because of his character, because of his heart. His gifts came second. So New York City, people out here, we are all, I shouldn't include myself, uh, we are a community of skillful hands. Uh, one of the things that will set you apart, I think the lesson we learned here is that the things that make you distinct, if you, in our culture, it's not enough to just have skillful hands, you have to have a beautiful heart too. Be brilliant and loving. And these are what you might call diverse excellencies that don't usually come together but when they do, when you see something, when you see excellence and humility or brilliance and warmth, that is really attractive to people. 
And it's not just to attract them to you, but the, uh, to attract them to the God who stands behind you and supports you. The true story of the world, because the true story of the world is not about me. It's not about you. But there's a greater narrative behind it all in which you can point to them and say, you can have that peace too. You can be as good as anybody and be humble and be brilliant and live sacrificially. Danny Meyer, Danny Meyer opened uh, this restaurant, Union Square Cafe, I think in 1984 or 1985, and he did it as a response to the culture around him. Danny Meyer loved fine food, and every restaurant that he went to that served fine food, he said it was cold and cerebral, and I didn't want to be there. And he said, I, but I loved fine food, so I'd, I'd go. But I, he said, I wanted to create a restaurant that was both had excellence, and when you came in there, uh, it was warm. They made you glad, uh, you know, you know cus the customers felt like they were welcome there, that they were, the, the staff was glad to have them. And that rest his restaurants have been the most popular restaurants of the last 30 years. Because he's warm and brilliant. Uh, point two. Love is transformational. Paul is talking about this community very specifically, and he's referencing all of these particular qualities about them because... These are exact opposite to how they're behaving. They're antithetical. The, the letter to the Corinthians is just full of problems in which he's confronting them on, in which they've not been patient, they've not been kind. And so this letter uh, is, is meant to transform us, how we live every day. And he's saying that we, uh, that we need to live antithetically because we don't know or rest in the love of God. Why? There was this, uh, I think it's because um, we're always in survival mode. There was a, uh, a recent book came out, a man ran a, a marathon, and alongside him, and actually eventually ahead of him, was a Navy SEAL. And the Navy SEAL, he could tell, did not train for this race in the way that he did, was not prepared in the way that he did. But he finished ahead of him. And at the end of the race, he discovered that every bone in the Navy SEAL's feet were broken. It's a 100-mile marathon. And yet, by sheer determination, by sheer mental strength, the Navy SEAL won, or, you know, finished the race. He wanted to know, how do I learn something from this guy? How can I glean what this man has known, uh, what he knows? And so he invites him to live in his house, and he writes a book about living for a month with the Navy SEAL. And the Navy SEAL uh, says to him that the body is always in survival mode and is constantly telling the mind, if you will, not to use much energy. Don't overextend yourself. Protect and preserve your energy. Spiritually speaking, we live very similarly. We don't want to love sacrificially out of the exact same principle, that we always feel like we're in survival mode. We don't think we can extend ourselves past a breaking point. Uh, but the truth is, is that we can love others beyond our capacity beyond our capacity it doesn't come naturally to us it has to be learned but when it does it can transform you and when I say it doesn't come naturally it has to be learned if you don't think that's true just ask any new parent any anybody that brings a child home for those first few days it is boot camp and having to love sacrificially right it that child presses you beyond your ability to love, uh, you begin to have, uh, you, re you begin to realize how impatient, how unkind, how self-serving, how grudge-holding, 
how borderline deli delighting and evil that you can be. And I, personally, I remember thinking, it was more subconsciously, but I recognized my thoughts. I kept thinking, when is somebody going to come and take this, this person away? But nobody did. And that has been the great blessing of my life. Because the child helped me grow. It forced me to live outside of my capacity to love. It helped me to tap into the kind of love that I actually had to give. And in Gilead, which is uh, Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, there's a wonderful quote from an aging pastor to his son who's too young to quite understand. And this, this man, John Ames, he's not going to live to have a real man-to-man -man conversation with his son. So he writes him a letter about how he has changed his life. And he says, you've been God's grace to me. When we come into contact with people that that allow us to love them and that love us back, that, that force us outside of our, what we think is our capacity to love. That's God's grace. That's God coming into your life and saying, I'm changing you. I'm transforming you. I mean, that's one of the promises of the Christian experience. Is that, is that community is one of God's primary vehicles or tools to change you. So if you and I are coming to church once a Sunday, then we have no interaction with God's Word or God's or the you know Christian community. We're not going to be changed. We need to be up close, living life on life with people, so they can see you. They can see how you live. There's this park in New York City called the High Line, and the High Line is this uh, elevated rail. And on it, because this is New York. We take anything good and then we start cramming apartments all around it. And so it's full of these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful apartments, really expensive apartments. But as you walk down the high line, you can look into every room in these apartments. That's the Christian life. It's a beautiful, beautiful experience. But everybody can look into your bedroom. Everybody can look into your kitchen. Everybody can look into your living room. They see how you live. It's for your benefit. It's for my benefit. That's what it's like to live in Christian community. That's what it's like to experience the love of God. He wants you in his sight so that you can know his great love. So Paul is giving a primary way in which he forms our, uh, forms our character. Uh, loving sacrificially means that in order to love, you may have to be very flexible. Many of us have ideas about how, the way, how things should go. We come from particular cultural backgrounds. Uh, we're particular genders, male, female. We all have different ideas about how problems should be solved. But when, you, when the goal is to live sacrificially, you're not just going to do things the way that they're supposed to be. You're going to be what, what you might call solution agnostic. It doesn't matter how you solve this problem. It doesn't matter which avenue you actually take. What matters is that you're going to do so in a loving way. You're going to commit to solving this problem in a way that's helping, dis, uh, helping uh, that you're loving sacrificially. There's an a, a organization called Charity Water. And Charity Water is committed to building wells all around the world for people who are, don't have access to water. They don't care how they do it. They started off just building a well. Then they started trapping water. Then they started doing all other kinds of irrigation. The point is to get water to people, to get life to people. They didn't care how they did it. 
And the point for us, the point Paul's trying to make is, the point is to solve problems, to, to live as a unified people. How you do it, who cares? But the core is, the end goal is always going to be love, sacrificial love. Um, and how do you begin doing that? I would say you can smart, start with small gestures of love and compassion. Paul took the time to write a letter to his friends. That's not... For email people, maybe that sounds like a huge thing. It wasn't such a huge gesture to write a letter to somebody, to tell them uh, about their lives, to, to process their lives before him. A small gesture had a huge impact on that community and a huge impact on the world. When I first met my wife, uh, some of you guys know this, but when I first met my wife, she had been diagnosed with cancer. She's perfectly fine now. But in that period of time, I decided I'm just going to be the best possible friend I can be to her. She's going to un misunderstand it. She's going to think I'm head over heels for her. And okay, that's fine. That, that is, it'll, it'll be okay. I'm not giving you the whole story. But <laughs> so I decided to uh, buy her a Walkman. And a Walkman is this machine that opens. <laughs> And there are tapes and stuff in there. And so I, I bought her this Walkman and I gave her uh, some tapes of sermons that I wanted her to hear to help her process what she was going through. And uh, I had no idea if they were going to help or not. And she, she took them. She came out here for a retreat before she was going to have some surgery. And she sat on a beach in Montauk and she listened to those tapes. And the penny dropped. And she began to experience... Uh, the love of God. She began to experience a peace about God that as she was going under the knife, that God was actually pruning her spiritually, drawing her closer to Him, giving her, giving her this, the love of God, uh, if you will. In that very small gesture of giving her a walkman, I had no idea that I was going to marry her. I had no idea we were going to have a child. Small gestures have, can have a tremendous, tremendous impact. Last point, love is dependable. Love never fails. Uh, verse 8, Paul calls us to live in light of the future. Paul says in verse 8 that love never fails. Another way to say that is that love never ends. So where every other good gift listed here will come to an end, it will expire, but love never will. While other, all other avenues will eventually come to an end, the way of love is the most excellent way, it's called. Because though it will prove difficult and awkward, it will never end. And you can be sure that it will lead you home. So after 9 p.m., when most fights occur, and you want to just choose your own path, you want to dig your heels in, and you want to win this argument, Paul is saying you, the surest road at that time is not to win the argument. The surest road, the road that will not crumble underneath your feet, is to check your pride at the door and to love one another. That is the solid ground. It's the scary road. Boy, is it the scary road. It's the hard road to apologize, to repent, to change. But he's saying, if you do that, this road will lead you home. It will not give, be a detour. It will lead you all the way home. And of course, Paul can talk about this love in this specific kind of way. Because he's not talking about an abstract theory, because he's talking about a person. The love of 
the love that Paul is describing is the love that he's experienced through Jesus. Paul was a very complicated person who had, a, in a sense, a checkered past. Though he had every skill, though he was a tremendously accomplished person, it drove him to create division and uh, disunity and even to killing people. And yet, because of how Christ has treated him, how God has treated him, him in Christ, he can say, love is truly patient. Love is truly kind. And so on and so forth. And <clears throat> you think about the gifts and talents of Jesus. Jesus Christ was the most gifted, the most talented person who ever lived. And not one time in the New Testament, do a study, not one time in the New Testament do you see him using those gifts and talents for himself. Never. Never makes life easier for himself. Never sleeps six inches above the ground because he can levitate. Because he could if he wanted to. Never. Always uses his gifts and talents for other people. And Paul is saying he's done that for me. Most specifically on the cross. Because it's on the cross that Jesus was patient with him. And that he remains patient with him still. Uh, Paul knows that on the cross Jesus was absolutely kind to him and remains kind to him now. That on the cross Jesus looked out to people who deserved death and he was not envious because he knew that by his death they would have eternal life. Paul knows that uh, Jesus never boasted but like a lamb before his shears he was silent so that you and I could boast in the love of God. And because of Jesus Christ, Paul can really say that God holds no records of wrongs for me. That I live freely, not trying to uh, build my identity on anything else, but in the true knowledge that I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the Most High. That's what sacrificial love looks like. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, Lord, for being a God who does listen to us that our prayers reach your ears and that in your great wisdom you answer them. You don't always answer them in the way that we would want but because you're wise and we're your children you answer them in the way that is needed. Lord, thank you for showing us the great love that you've given us in Jesus. Would you, by the power of your spirit, would you make us more of these qualities so that we might uh, exhibit your great love in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.